District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. Here on the podcast, we've talked about the perennial effort to ban lead tackle and ammunition on public lands, specifically newly opened public lands. For those of you who are just following in on this news update, the Fish and Wildlife Service has announced that on new openings going forward, they will prohibit the use of lead bullets and tackle going forward, stemming from a court case, the Center for Biological Diversity versus Fish and Wildlife Service, that brought about this rule change. And who better to break down the implications from the new rule going into effect than to have Mark Oliva from the National Shooting Sports Foundation and Mike Leonard of the American Sport Fishing Association representing the hunting, shooting sports, and fishing industries respectively to break this down and what impact it'll have on both of these very, very important sectors of the outdoor industry. So gentlemen, thank you for joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us, Gabby. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate being on. Could you introduce my listeners to you guys if they're unfamiliar with your organizations? Yeah, so I'll go first, Gabriel. So I'm Mark Oliva. I'm the Managing Director for Public Affairs for the National Shooting Sports Foundation. And we are the trade association for all your firearm and ammunition makers, distributors, uh, retailers, ranges. We represent everything that happens to get that that firearm or get that box of ammunition to the gun counter so you have the chance to be able to purchase that. Uh, so we have, uh, we're working on those kind of policies and those kind of issues to make sure the industry is able to stay within uh, the laws and the regulations that we have, uh, both federally, state, and the ATF regulations, uh, to make sure that we can bring those products to market and you can exercise your Second Amendment rights to be able to participate in uh, hunting and shooting sports. Yeah, and I'm uh, Mike Leonard. I'm Vice President of Government Affairs for the American Sport Fishing Association. We are the trade association that represents the recreational fishing industry, so sort of the fishing counterpart to NSSF. Uh, most of our members are manufacturers of anything to do with fishing rods, reels, line lures, apparel, uh, sunglasses, kind of across the board, as well as retailers, wholesalers, really anyone in the business of recreational fishing. Um, most of the policy work that we do. So I oversee our government affairs program is natural resource related. Um, you know, for people to uh, buy fishing tackle, you need to have fishing opportunities, which means a lot of fish in the water, a lot of access to that water. Um, and uh, we also do some tax and trade stuff where I think the topic of today comes into play, wanting to make sure that anglers have um, opportunities to buy affordable fishing tackle and that um, supply chains flow uh, that we can get the products to anglers they want to use and uh, government unnecessarily prohibit their ability to uh, to get out on the water. Were both of your organizations expecting this rule change to be handed down? Was it much of a surprise or did you expect this to be handed down by the Fish and Wildlife Service? Yeah, Gabriel, I'll, I'll jump in on here on that one. Um, it was not a surprise. Uh, there have been uh, Efforts made in the past uh, by previous administrations, by uh, by special interest groups, to limit the use of traditional ammunition on uh, on public lands. Uh, if we look back to the final day, literally the last final day of the Obama administration, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Director 
uh, Dan Ash, uh, had written a rule then uh, that was going to ban the use of traditional lead ammunition on all public lands uh, going forward. Uh, that rule was rescinded on Secretary Zinke's first day in office. He, he rolled that rule back. Uh, that was presented without any evidence of uh, scientific uh, population uh, declines or any kind of impacts to wildlife populations. Uh, and when it was later investigated by Congress, uh, they they found that that was, in fact, devoid of any scientific evidence whatsoever. Um, so we, we see a similar thing here. The rule was proposed uh, and went for public comment. Uh, NSSF, along with many other groups, uh, offered public comment to it. Uh, and those comments were largely ignored. So the finalization of the rule uh, was a little bit of surprise on the timing, but we expected that it was going to be coming down. We didn't expect that uh, the administration would be uh, deviating from their line of, uh, of uh, serving the interests of special interest anti-hunting groups uh, that are working to limit the ability for you to use traditional lead ammunition. And I think it's important to understand, too, is on the final rule that came out, they offered no scientific evidence that the use of traditional lead ammunition or, or lead tackle is showing any kind of population uh, effects on wildlife uh, anywhere in the United States. They, they base this on uh, the fact that it, or, the, or the supposed idea that it may have uh, potential impacts. And they've also left open the door that they could further expand it. So again, they've opened up new hunting and fishing opportunities, 18 new hunting and fishing opportunities in national wildlife refuges. Uh, but to do that, you have to buy into their uh, their idea now that you're going to have to limit the ability uh, for people who want to exercise those options, that now they're going to have to be able to you know do that within their rules and regulations. So they have to buy alternative ammunition. And from, from the industry's impact uh, of this, we see that as, uh, as a limiting factor. Alternative ammunition is... Uh, much more expensive. It is much uh, harder to find. Uh, 1% of all ammunition that's provided, produced today, that includes all your steel, your bismuth, your tungsten ammunition that's used for waterfowl, all the copper ammunition that's used is, uh, it's only 1% of all the ammunition that's produced. And it, it is sometimes prohibitively expensive. And, and we think that this is a factor that, you know, while they're saying that this is a, a new opportunity for someone to go hunting or fishing on national wildlife refuges, what it really is, is limiting their ability to do that because it may be pricing some of those people out of the market. Yeah, I'll just add, Mark covered it really well. Um, you know, the history of the Fish and Wildlife Service looking at lead ammo and tackle bans was not new. I at least was a little surprised to see it come forward in this way, as Mark said, sort of this, uh, I view it as like a Trojan horse of, uh, we're going to give you access. And this is what's to me disappointing about this is uh, the expansion of uh, wildlife refuges to hunting and fishing is always something that we as a community celebrate. It's a periodic, as the service is developing, it's hunting and fishing regulations each year. Um, you know, going back, several administrations have gone through and identified opportunities to expand hunting and fishing access. Again, great thing. I think all of our industries support providing more opportunities, especially on public land for our anglers and hunters to get out there. But um, to, to tack on to that, this, um, this lead ammo and tackle ban, it, it feels um, almost like we're being manipulated in a lot of ways. Like, uh, well, just be happy that you're getting access and you know, you'll just have to stomach the bad that comes with it. And for an agency that prides itself and really in kind of its uh, statutory authority is um is based on the idea that we're, we're going to manage fish and wildlife on science 
to um, you have to have absolutely no scientific basis whatsoever to not even go through the motions of providing evidence of where lead ammunition or tackles providing any sort of impacts in these refuges is just it's really really disappointing and is and makes it clear that there are other motivations behind besides fish and wildlife management here that yeah and could you both briefly with respect to both hunting and fishing talk about what happens when you take away lead components or lead fragments um, and do the alternatives weigh better than lead because that seems to be clearly missing from the decision i, I wholeheartedly agree because they lacked a uh, scientific backing to it it was mostly in my opinion largely emotional based but could you compare and contrast briefly lead and non-lead um alternatives and, and what what how that plays into both of these activities yeah mike if you want to go ahead first yeah sure um so lead is used in a lot of different applications for fishing i mean people don't realize the there's components in your reels there's ballast and lures that have um pieces of lead in them that's generally not what uh, policymakers are talking about when they talk about lead bans, although sometimes the language is worded in a way that's big enough where you're not sure if uh, even those very minor forms are, are being implicated here. But in general, it's sinkers and jigs, um, which, uh, you know, if you think a split shot or um, tie on, slip on, uh, and then jigs. Uh, the reason lead is so widely used, it's the majority of the sinker and jig market, uh, the vast majority, is because it's dense. It's malleable and it's cheap. Um, all those are the perfect qualities for uh, for sinkers, especially for things like split shot, where you, you need the ability to crimp it onto your line. Uh, there are not viable alternatives that have that combination of affordability, malleability, density. The main alternatives for sinkers and jigs are tungsten, steel, and tin. But each of those have some limitations around them. Tungsten is actually more dense than lead. It's uh, orders of magnitude more expensive, however. Um, so you get a lot of sort of your high-end uh, professional bass anglers that are willing to stomach the cost and, and go um, and buy tungsten. It, uh, it does not have malleability, so it's more limited in the types of sinkers and jigs it can be used for. But um, you know, for the density, you actually get a, uh, an increase there compared to lead. But the trade-off being it's a lot more, for, a lot more expensive uh, your sort of average sort of entry level lower income angler, it's just not really a, a viable option for a lot of them. Uh, it's going to start turning folks away if that's what's left. Um, steel and tin, uh, you don't have anywhere near the density of lead. Um, you don't have, at least in the case of steel, the uh, malleability and, uh, you know, just generally a, a poor, poor performing um, alternatives. Um, yeah. What we've said is it's a if anglers prefer to use those, if they just on a personal level would prefer not to interact with lead, then that's absolutely an angler choice that we support. Many of our members that make those alternatives, the challenge is uh, wanting to ensure that before any sort of government regulation comes in, we have really good uh, data to back that this is causing any sort of wildlife impacts. The human health argument is not really viable. There's not evidence i've ever found of people sort of popping split shot in their mouth and swallowing it it's just not really <laughs> something that, that the industry sees anywhere um so before we start going down this route because you know it gets to be a slippery slope of if you're going to start regulating this what other types of tackle are we going to start regulating and and where is it 
Yeah, and so I'll jump on to some of the things that Mike pointed out on, on the issues of uh, you know lead being used and why it's uh, why it's a an attractive uh, option for anglers. Same thing is applied to the uh, to the ammunition industry. Uh, again, it's a, it's a cheap option. It is 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 well performing and it's it's tried and true. And I think something important to point out that um, a lot of your hunters uh, will stick with a very specific uh, brand and uh, and type of uh, ammunition that they know is going to perform each and every time. Now, hunters specifically are very interested in making sure that when they harvest an animal, that they're going to be able to make an ethical shot on that animal and be able to put that animal on the ground very quickly and not have to have that animal suffer any uh, unnecessary uh, wounds or or, or, or suffering uh, when they go through that harvesting process. They want to make sure that they can, they can quickly and cleanly kill that animal and, and get it uh, get it on the ground. So uh, I think that's important to understand is that a lot of uh, a lot of hunters will stick with what they know is going to work uh, the way they've seen it work over time. Uh, and I'm no different. Uh, there's a very specific brand and manufacturer that I will shoot through my uh, .30-06 bolt rifle. Uh, I'll only stick with that one brand or that one user because I know that the the Ballistics performance is going to be exactly where I need it to be. I know how the terminal performance on the target is going to be each and every time. I can predict that when I make a shot, uh, that that shot is going to be uh, an effective shot on that animal and, and be able to put it on the ground. And likewise, for my 6.5 Creedmoor hunting rifle as well, I use a completely different manufacturer and a different you know different type of round, uh, also a lead core uh, based round. But uh, I know that uh, that particular round is going to fly through that rifle, uh, out of the barrel of that rifle, each and uh, each and every time the same way I need it to. Uh, and again, there may be a lot of hunters who choose to use alternative ammunition, particularly copper. Copper tends to be probably one of the more popular uh, uh, alternative ammunitions for uh, for rifle hunting. Uh, but that choice should be left to the individual hunter, devoid of any uh, scientific evidence that is causing population detrimental population impacts or impacts to to uh, to uh, to humans, uh, and I think it's important to point out we've been hunting animals uh, here in North America for well over 400 years with lead ammunition. Um, there has been no recorded case of any hunter suffering uh, lead poisoning due to ingestion of lead uh, ammunition, any kind of fragments of lead, uh, and that can easily be be cut out of the meat if there is a problem with some of the some of the uh, ammunition fragmenting. But that is not common to today's hunting uh, ammunition. Today's hunting ammunition uh, tends to be mostly bonded bullets, where the the bullet is is, is bonded to the the jacket of that round, so it stays together and it, and it performs uh, in a way that is not going to fragment and it's going to hold that weight retention through the entire target. So I don't think that's very common. I think when we see some of these images of, of lead fragmentation in animals, uh, you know, post-harvest, what we're looking at, what we're looking at there is uh, images of, of match-grade ammunition, which is not designed or intended to be used for, uh, for hunting. That's, that's intended to be used on targets. Um, so I think when you're talking bonded ammunition, it's what most hunters are using, or if they want to choose to use alternative ammunition, that should be left to their choice unless there can be a scientific evidence showing that there's kind of population impacts or, or human health impacts. And if we look through this, this has been something that was studied back in 2008 by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They took a look at uh, hunters' blood lead levels uh, in North Dakota, and they found that the blood lead levels of hunters 
a consuming wild game harvested with traditional ammunition was actually lower than that of the ambient population. And I think there's some things that people, when they hear about lead, and of course everyone becomes concerned about, you know, lead and, and, and the poisonous effects of lead, and that there is no safe level of lead uh, that is acceptable. Uh, but I think it's important that there's to understand there's a difference between soluble and insoluble lead. So we hear about issues of of lead in the water, uh, particularly when you hear the horror stories of of like Flint, Michigan, and, and lead in some of those old pipes. That's that's the issue of soluble lead, lead that's being dissolved into the water. When we're talking about ammunition that's being used, that's insoluble lead. That lead does not dissolve in water. That lead is 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 a natural occurring compound. It doesn't dissolve. It doesn't it doesn't get into there, and it's it's not. We don't have the issues of bioaccumulation in the animals that we're harvesting. So I think there's a little bit of a misnomer. That's a I think good overview of that because I've written for Real Clear Policy. I think leaning in on that CDC study that found really no statistical difference between I think it was harvested game that contained lead fragments that were ultimately removed versus meat that didn't. So it was pretty statistically null um, from that too. So I encourage everyone to read those studies. But we've already seen lead bans actually enacted at various state levels. I think of my home state, California. I know the ASA has done scholarship on this. But what have been the impacts when lead bans have gone into effect at the state level? And can that be kind of looked into and, and kind of taken into account for what would happen more federally if this proceeds? Yeah, so I'll, I'll jump in on that real quick. Uh, we actually looked at that a couple of years ago in California uh, with their increasing ban now across the entire state of California. Of course, it started out with uh, Central California, and there was the idea was that they were going to uh, ban the use of lead ammunition and protect uh, condors. Condors are scavengers. They'll eat everything that's on the ground that you present in front of them. Uh, and, and there were claims then that the condors were eating uh, lead ammunition, lead fragments out of, uh, out of animals that had been shot and had not been fully recovered or the gut pile have been left out in the woods and uh, and they were you know eating the carrion from that and ingesting that lead at the same time there were also uh, parts of that study that were purposely left out and and we've pointed out in the past there were actually observations uh, by biologists of watching condors eat lead paint chips off the side of water towers uh, so some of that study was not in uh, not completely uh, put out there in full disclosure to make sure they can make the best scientific decisions. Of course, that decision in California went from just the central area of California to now the entire state. And you've got environmentalist groups that are actually trying to push that out to other areas now that the condors are recovering and flying beyond the borders of California into Arizona, into Utah, and they're starting to see Nevada into Utah as well. Uh, they want to start to expand that area out to where the condors may fly eventually. Um, but again, what we saw the effect on uh, on hunting participation in the state, we're, we're talking uh, California in the 1970s had uh, upwards of two to three million hunters buying licenses every year. Uh, hunting licenses sales in California now are less than 300,000 uh, licenses sold every year. So we're seeing that participation levels in California have fallen off the cliff to the point where the state's Fish and Game Department has actually been putting out calls to encourage people to get back into the hunting and shooting sports because they recognize that decreased participation in the hunting uh, hunting and, and, and angling out there in California is actually decreasing their ability to get more money coming in from from the from the Pittman Robertson funds and from from all those other funds that come back uh, through the U.S. Treasury and to the to the Fish and Wildlife Service to pay for conservation. That's all based on geographic area and participation based on hunting license and fishing license sales. 
So when those numbers go down, that number will also go down. So we're seeing a degradation uh, of the ability for and, you know the outdoorsmen and women out there in California to have uh, their voices represented uh, when it comes out to wildlife conservation in the state. And that's actually hurting long-term conservation efforts because they're pushing this uh, policy that really isn't based on any solid scientific evidence. Yeah, and I wish we had the the level of uh, study that that marked uh, that NSSF has. Part of it on the fishing side is um, Gabrielle, as you mentioned, there's a handful of states that have enacted restrictions on uh, lead sinkers and jigs. These are um, states in the Northeast, primarily that, um, and really in those states there were ranges or weight, either length or weight ranges of lead sinkers and jigs that were uh, restricted in freshwater. So the scale at which lead sinkers and jigs have been restricted um, isn't really at a, a level in which it, it lends itself for easy analysis of the impacts. We have done broader impacts of something like uh, what Mark mentioned earlier when the Fish and Wildlife Service um, uh, had that on the very last day of the Obama administration, a sweeping rule to uh, wipe out any sort of lead ammunition or tackle in all wildlife refuges. That's the scale at which we are confident we would start seeing pretty significant impacts in fishing participation. You know, it, anglers are a fairly picky, a finicky lot. Um, they're very price sensitive. We see this when states uh, go through the process of increasing fishing licenses, which is a worthwhile endeavor. But at the same time, there's, you know, there's a basic supply and demand uh, issue there. And um, same with whenever fuel prices go up, uh, boat trips go down because um, boaters don't want to put more uh, fuel on their boats and um, trips. They think twice about making trips. In the grand scheme, it's easy to question that thought process when you've already spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on a boat, or you're already spending thousands of dollars on your fishing equipment. But uh, in the end, it is uh, a, a decision that anglers make when they decide uh, if they want to go fishing or if they want to go buy new equipment. When the price of things go up, they're going to start second guessing it and. The, the broader the scale that this starts going, the more we as an industry are going to start to see some real. Economically speaking, how much of an impact would this have, let's say, on Pittman-Robertson and also Dingle-Johnson uh, amendment funds? And how does that, with the price increase, ultimately lead to fewer participants? Make that connection, I guess, on both points, if you guys can. Yeah, so I, th I think when we're looking at uh, the impacts it could have on, uh, you know, Pittman-Robertson excise tax contributions uh, to conservation, uh, it's it's a little hard to predict. But I think if we look at the numbers uh, that we've seen over the past couple of years, we can kind of get an idea of, of what uh, guns and ammo is doing uh, on our part to uh, support wildlife conservation. So last year, uh, there were... Um, there was uh, $1.5 billion that was apportioned uh, back to the states uh, for uh, both Pittman Robertson, uh, for the Pittman Robertson dollars uh, that was supporting uh, supporting wildlife conservation. Of course, that $1.5 billion comes from all the Pittman Robertson excise taxes, firearms, ammunition, archery equipment, all that stuff. $1.1 billion of that was directly attributable to uh, firearm and uh, ammunition sales. So that's every time. Uh, a firearm maker makes a gun and they they finish that gun out and they put a serial number on it that is a that is a taxable item now uh, every time an ammunition maker 
makes a box of ammunition and sells it at their first point of sale, whether that be a direct to consumer sale uh, through a website or be a be a uh, sale to a distributor, they're paying that tax right there on the spot. Uh, and that was you know over 1.1 billion dollars that supported wildlife, and that was the highest uh, highest level that's ever been uh, put out to date so far. It, over the lifetime since 1937, the firemen, just firemen, ammunition makers have paid over 15.3 billion dollars to to wildlife conservation efforts. And if we adjust that for, for inflation, that comes out to over 23 billion dollars. Uh, obviously, if we're adjusting for those those early year dollars that, that were coming in, uh, so it's a significant contribution that's that's being made. And I think if you look at the level of of gun buying that's happening right now, uh, in in 2020 we had over 20. 21 million background checks for the sale of a firearm. And in 2021, we had 19, we had 18.5 million background checks for the sale of a firearm. And again, it's not apples to apples, one to one. You can buy uh, multiple firearms or one single background check if you're doing it at the same time, the same location. Uh, but it's important to note that it's kind of like buying a garden hose, right? You can buy one garden hose, but you're always going to need to push more water through that. Well, the same thing with a gun. And if you buy one firearm, you're always going to need more ammunition to go through that. So now, all these new recreational shooters, these new hunters, these new gun owners that are out there uh, becoming uh, more experienced and becoming uh, more practiced with their firearms are continually buying more ammunition. And that continues to feed into uh, wildlife conservation. So when you start to cut into that and you start to, you know, make efforts that are say, well, you can only buy ammunition that's going to be three to five times more expensive. Well, people aren't going to buy as much ammunition. Uh, there, that's going to be some of the factor of, of how often do I get to the range to practice? Do I go, you know, once a week? Do I go once a month? Or do I go every, you know, every quarter to make sure that I, I'm good at uh, what I'm doing? So if they're not buying as much and that volume starts to go down, and of course that will start to affect uh, the monies that are going into wildlife conservation overall. Yeah, Mark covered it really well. Same system on the, the fishing side, excise tax on all fishing equipment paid for by the manufacturer. But I, yeah, I think, Gabrielle, the, the broader point here is this uh, very clear line between the purchase of firearms, ammunition, archery equipment, fishing tackle that supports conservation is not something that policymakers often think about when uh, regulations or uh, uh, laws are proposed that could negatively impact uh, these these industries. That you know, hunters, anglers are, are the industries that they support contribute more towards conservation than any other group in the country, in the world, likely. Um, and that money is going back to support state wildlife conservation, to uh, you know, on the fishing side, to uh, restore uh, aquatic habitat, to uh, to remove dams, to um, to create new boat ramps. I mean, all things that are tremendously great for the environment, for future participation. And when actions are taken that are going to make it more difficult uh, and deter fishing participation, the same thing on the hunting side, that ultimately is going to mean less money to support conservation. Uh, the ironic part being that a lot of times you've got these environmental groups that are proposing these restrictions uh, under the guise of we want to protect the environment. But in the end, it's going to hurt the environment because um, those conservation dollars that we as a community are putting up um, they ultimately go back and support these wildlife resources. Um, yeah. No one else is going to step up and provide that funding. So ultimately, it's the resource itself that. And we have already seen, I think, some legislative remedies proposed. I think Senator Steve Daines put out a bill to counter this. 
Do you think that's enough to perhaps stop this rule from going into effect? And what else can be done to draw awareness to the impacts potentially stemming from this new rule change? Yeah, so the NSSF is, is probably supportive of Senator Dane's legislation. In fact, we worked very closely with Senator Dane's and the staff uh, to draft that legislation because we knew it was needed. Um, that when you have rules that are being written like this by an administration, really the only way that you can counter these rules uh, are either through overturning that rule by writing another rule to rescind it, or writing legislation that says that this rule is uh, is not a is not a lawful rule and has to comply with law. I mean, I think that's the understanding that. You know, people have to have that between some of these uh, federal regulations and these rules uh, that law ultimately trumps that. So, um, you know, we're very proud to work with them on getting that legislation introduced, and and, and we are very hopeful. Um, you know, is is it is more needed? It, you would hope that more is not needed. You would hope that uh, our elected representatives on Capitol Hill, both in the Congress, uh, both in in the House of Representatives and the Senate, would you know come to wiser minds and, and say, okay, yeah, this is, this is really what's happening and, and listening to uh, voices on both sides. But we, we know that there are those who are beholden to special interests and those who are just uh, not going to listen to um, listen to the, to the data uh, or just ignore that none of the data is there, uh, which is what we're seeing with this rule uh, being implemented. Uh, so it's, 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 it's a constant battle. It's constant vigilance and it's constant, uh, education of the public to make sure that they understand what's at risk. And I think what's at risk here ultimately is the the wildly successful uh, North American wildlife model that we've had. We enjoy wildlife populations here in the United States and across North America that are really the envy of the world. And we see other parts of the world working to uh, duplicate our model of the user pay system. And that's both on the on the hunting and the angling side. You know, we are the ones who are invested in this. And I think when we look on the hunting side, we look back to when the Pittman-Robertson excise tax was enacted in 1937. There were very few waterfowl. There were about a million waterfowl still left were flying through the air. Pronghorn were were much much lower. Rocky Mountain elk were less less than a hundred thousand. Uh, whitetail and deer were were not nearly as populated as we have now. Wild turkeys weren't anything. But now we look across the landscape, and we have plentiful uh, wild game species that we're able to, to enjoy. And it's not just hunters who are able to enjoy that, but anybody who, you know, observes and admires nature is able to get out there. And that's paid for by uh, these, these excise taxes that are paid uh, on the Pittman-Robertson side and on the Dingle-Johnson side. And we're able to enjoy those together. That These things are all paying for not just the wildlife, but also the habitats in which they live, those conservation areas where they, they thrive. And of course, when we're putting money toward, uh, you know, for bear habitat to be able to to sustain bear populations. Well, that's not just benefiting that bear. It's also benefiting some of those lower species uh, that that are also part of that bear's habitat. Some of the animals and some of the fauna that they feed on is also benefiting from that because they're trying to create that that habitat for them to to uh, thrive. And and I think that's something that is really at the end of the day is at risk here in America is if we if we cut off that funding these these two taxes the, the Pittman Robertson and the Dingle Johnson taxes are truly one of the few uh, lockbox taxes that are left in America they only go toward the thing that they're intended to and if if wildlife conservation has to compete for uh, funding through the general fund like other taxes have to then that becomes a very scary prospect for wildlife in America. Yeah, I'll just add on the legislation. I, I do think that, um, you know, at least from ASA's standpoint, that in our minds is our our best hope uh, in the you know short term, midterm, to hopefully um, get this rule uh, rectified. There may be some appropriations options 
uh, at some point down the road. But, um, you know, and, and just to clarify with this legislation, it is not saying, you know, there's never a case in which any sort of uh, federal agency could regulate lead ammunition or tackle. You know, that's never been ASA's position to just say, no, don't ever do it. You know, we recognize there may be situations typically on a very localized scale. I mean, really with fishing tackle, we didn't get into this, but the main issue uh, is loon interactions. That's why you've seen some states in the Northeast, as well as Washington State, that have implemented some state-specific restrictions on um, ranges of lead sinkers and jigs that might be ingested by loons. That has to do with um, the, the, the process loons use um, for to aid in their digestion. They go to the bottom of streams, uh, ponds, ingest gravel, and that uh, aids in their digestive process to break up uh, the food that they've eaten. Um, if, if there's a discarded sinker or jig in that gravel that they pick up, that loon will die of lead toxicosis. Um, that's really the extent to which there is any sort of interaction with wildlife. Uh, even in that situation, loon populations as a whole are healthy um, and increasing across their range, or at least stable uh, in certain parts. So we wonder if the wildlife population is doing okay. You know, obviously we want to minimize impacts, but uh, we can't start managing wildlife on an individual animal level. We manage for populations. There's a tremendous slippery slope if we start uh, managing wildlife for the welfare of, of individual animals. Um, outside of that, there really are not any sort of documented cases of lead tackle uh, being uh, uh, any sort of harm to wildlife populations. But that said, again, this legislation is not saying you can't ever regulate it. It is saying for a uh, agency, either the Fish and Wildlife Service, Bureau of Land Management, U.S. Forest Service, you're talking about the bulk of all federal lands just within those agencies. Um, there cannot be this type of restriction on lead ammunition or tackle unless that um, is consistent with the state in which the refuge or uh, federal property is located. Um, so if the state wildlife agency says, yes, there's documented scientific evidence that lead ammunition or fishing tackle is creating uh, harm to wildlife populations, then uh, a restriction can go in place. Um, ideally, we would be working together with agencies to identify what the best, um, best regulation might look like. But um, again, so that's to us a very common sense, just good management approach that, that needs to be taken. Um, and we're hopeful that uh, you know, we can gain some more momentum behind this legislation and ultimately get this going. Because you know, in the grand scheme, with this, if, if this rule is all that this is, we're talking about a handful of wildlife refuges in which um, ammunition, lead ammunition or tackle will be restricted in the future. That's bad. We don't want to see that happen. But the greater concern, at least from our standpoint, is, is this going to become the start of a trend? You know, if we're doing it here and not providing any sort of justification, is this just going to sweep across um, not just the Fish and Wildlife Service, but other federal agencies who you know, now have learned, hey, we don't have to wildlife, we don't have to manage wildlife based on science anymore. Let's just start banning uh, the, the, the equipment that hunters and anglers use without any sort of reason behind it, just because of uh, fear of lawsuit or pressure from, from environmental groups or, or what have you. So we, we really need to figure out how to nip this in the bud, not let it spread. And from our standpoint, deferring to the scientific expertise of state fish and wildlife agencies is the direction that this needs to head. And how can my listeners stay engaged with you both as we finish our conversation? Uh, what, what do you want to take? What do you want? What action do you want listeners to take and those who fish and hunt to take uh, going forward while I still have you guys for a few minutes? Yeah. yeah. If I could make a quick plug, um, sure. 
And Mark, I don't know if you all have something similar, but um, I would strongly encourage listeners um, uh, to go to our website, keepamericafishing.org. We have an action center. It's our angler advocacy online platform. Um, We have an action center there where in a few clicks, you can contact your congressional delegation and um, flag your support for this legislation that Senator Daines has introduced. Um, We try to make it as easy as possible. It's really important for your congressional delegation to hear from you on the importance of this um, and, uh, you know, drum up as much support for this legislation as we can. So I think that's the quickest and easiest uh, direction I would point folks to help is, um, you know, help us rally support for this bill. And very similarly, as NSSF's website has a link to our legislative action center where they can, anybody who's interested can go on, click on, uh, you know, what are the the hot topic bills that are affect the firearm industry? And this certainly is one, uh, you know, and the same thing. Uh, we'll be able to connect you to your uh, congressional delegation, to your senators, to your, to your members of Congress, and make sure that they're aware of, of your support behind this. But uh, in addition, I would encourage uh, any of the listeners to uh, be you know become uh, become soaked in the knowledge of of what this really is and 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 what the issues are surrounding this and we we as as I'm sure Mike group does is they'll post up uh, blogs and they'll post up uh, you know kind of notices here and there that'll remind folks of what's happening uh, not just on Capitol Hill but what's happening around the country and and where some of these issues are really starting to become problematic for you know, members of our industries. But also, you know, look around some of these other conservation groups and some of these other, uh, you know, hunting groups and fishing groups that are looking out. And I'd point people to uh, an article that was uh, recently published on uh, Mediator.com by uh, Jim Heffelfinger, a biologist out of uh, Arizona who, who, you know, really encouraged people to become aware of the difference between advocacy and science. And that a lot of these issues, especially around, uh, you know, lead ammunition and, and lead tackle are uh, being subverted. And, and there's not really science on this um, is really going toward uh, advocacy. So become aware. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't already, make sure you find us on your preferred podcast player. We largely circulate on Apple, Spotify, and countless others, but those are our two big podcast platforms we want to push. Make sure you're subscribed there, especially on Apple. If you like the podcast a lot, go leave us some reviews. We'd be more than grateful to get some five-star reviews from you guys. Moreover, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and a little bit on YouTube. We don't populate there, but connect with us on social media. Find me personally on social media with blue check marks. Super easy to find, and I would love to hear your feedback and know who you'd like to see on the podcast. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. Stay tuned for the next episode.